Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. After last year's flooding in eastern Kentucky, some people had trouble getting insurance reimbursement. But it wasn't just floodwaters that destroyed homes. Okay, we know that landslides are happening, but why isn't there more coverage for people who suffer from landslides like we know there is for flooding? We also visit with scientists who explain how the language we use can lead to misunderstandings about climate change. It's words that people do understand. They just understand them to mean something completely different. And in Appalachia, farmers have long planted their gardens by celestial science. Berea College professor Sarah Hall has a new book about how that knowledge is still in use today. One thing I would say is that I was I was surprised at how many people learned from women in their family. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We've shared several stories here on Inside Appalachia about the historic flooding in eastern Kentucky and people's ongoing efforts to rebuild their homes and lives. But there's another, less discussed aspect of the story. Landslides. And how tricky it can be trying to get insurance reimbursement. I recently spoke with Kentucky journalist Austin Gaffney, who's written about the issue. Austin Gaffney, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. So you have this fascinating story in The Bitter Southerner. It was published in collaboration with Grist and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It's uh, headlined, Washed Away. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this story and, and kind of what it's about? Basically, the story follows a family who live in a small holler called the town of Busey, and it's outside Hazard, which is in Perry County, Kentucky. And your listeners, I'm sure, have heard about last summer's flooding event that happened um, in central Appalachia. So around past midnight on July 28th, uh, the 12 year old daughter in this family like shook her mom awake and was basically like, I hear a lot of rain outside. What's going on? The mom got up and she saw that a landslide had hit the back of their home. This is not the first landslide that the family had been through. There was a previous landslide Uh, with flooding events the winter before, so March of 2021. So they recognized what had happened, and they basically immediately left and tried to get to Hazard, but the road was just covered with water flooding off the mountain next to them. Um, So they had to turn around and go back home and just kind of like wait it out. The reason I wrote this story is not just because they have a harrowing experience, but also basically what comes next. So in Kentucky, our number one most frequent costliest natural disaster is flooding, but that is followed closely by landslides. And while there was a lot of great reporting on the flooding, I wanted to kind of like get back into what's going on with these landslides that often accompany these major flooding events. So the Baker's both in 2021 and in 2022, basically had to go through a series of mazes to try to get funding to pay for the landslide damage at their house. Because landslides, unlike 
flooding, which has a separate insurance policy, or earthquakes, which has another separate insurance policy, landslides are not covered by standard homeowners insurance or any specific landslide insurance. So getting money to pay back for their damages was kind of like a trauma on top of a trauma. What types of problems are people encountering so far as these landslides and insurance? So when a landslide occurs at someone's home, if they own that home, they can first go to their homeowner's insurance. So the Bakers, for example, had State Farm, but under State Farm's um, standard homeowner insurance policy, they don't cover landslides. They call them an act of God. So they can't go to State Farm. Typically, you would try FEMA next, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and they also don't cover landslides unless it is a mud flow, which means like it's it falls under the same insurance policy as flooding. So it's this like cryptic distinction that probably people wouldn't be able to determine super easily, right? If it's a mud flow or a landslide. So if FEMA denies them, they can get money from the Small Business Administration, which is a loan that they have to pay back. For the bakers, they also, uh, Linda, the mom, worked for a law office as a legal secretary. And so she started looking at maps of the hillside above her home and realized that there was an abandoned mine that was about 150 yards up the hillside. So she applied to the abandoned mine lands office in Kentucky to ask for assistance, but they also denied her. They said the mine uh, basically did not have the hydrology to send water down the mountain. So their last resort was to contact their state representative, um, their U.S. representative, Hal Rogers. He's in his 21st term. He's a Republican. Um, and Hal Rogers also denied assistance. So Basically, for the bakers, they bought a house for $136,000 about three years ago, and they now have paid or borrowed $94,000 on that home. So they're just one example, but for families across the state if they and across the region, they are basically going through the same kind of like network of trying to get assistance. One of the especially effective parts of this story washed away is that when you talk about the bakers and their conundrum, we're not just reading their name on the page, but we're actually seeing their faces. And that's because it's comics journalism that you produced in collaboration with Memphis artist, Martha Park. Can you talk about uh, your work with Martha and how y'all y'all put this together? Yeah. So Martha and I, this is our second story that I've been lucky enough to work on with her. We first did a story uh, near where she lives in Memphis about water issues there. And then we wanted to kind of keep following the issue of um, clean water and water-related kind of flooding-related landslide problems across the region. So I knew the Bakers from their previous uh, landslide event and we decided to try and like pitch a story around, okay, we know that landslides are happening, but why isn't there more coverage for people who suffer from landslides? Like we know there is for flooding. Um, so Martha and I, basically our process is to 
come up with a story idea together. We have like a giant, a giant document of many story ideas. And then we will just approach uh, a publisher to see if they're interested in working with us as well. But it's very collaborative. So while I do a majority of the reporting, Martha, along with being an illustrator, is a very talented writer herself. So she will also help me like edit the piece and figure out what works for this form, which is very different from typical reporting because you're trying to make it as brief and contextual with the illustrations as possible. So the illustrations are telling a story um, that the text can't really show on its own. So Austin, you've also done a number of stories about coal ash, which is a widespread issue across Appalachia and really the U.S. that continues to unfold. The story that sticks with me and that I think has has really triggered some policy changes was about the coal ash spill in Tennessee at the Kingston coal plant. So can you tell us about what happened? Three days before Christmas in 2008, um, the Kingston Fossil Plant, which is a coal burning generation station owned by the Tennessee Valley Authority, it burst open. Coal ash is a waste left over from burning coal. And basically coal ash concentrates a lot of the heavy metals and radioactive materials naturally occurring in coal rock. Um, So things like lead, mercury, arsenic, selenium. And all of that waste is basically a, a fine powder typically called fly ash. And it's often stored wet so that the fly ash doesn't just like take off into the air in a holding impoundment typically called a pond. So At Kingston, there was a giant pond that had been showing for years that it was relatively unstable and that there were cracks in the earthen dike that was holding the pond back. And that pond burst. So it burst in the middle of the night. It went across 300 acres of rural Roan County. It went into the Clinch River. Around 3 or 4 a.m., a bunch of workers with the local Teamsters Union were called to come to the site to try and be first responders to figure out what to do to clean up this enormous, enormous disaster. It is still to date the largest industrial disaster in the U.S. So for the next five years, these workers cleaned up the site, but they were in conditions where they did not wear any dusk masks or any protective gear. And they were told by people in charge of the cleanup that they could, for example, eat a pound of coal ash a day, which we know contains concentrated heavy metals, and that they would be fine. So they were ingesting all of this ash, and they started to become sick. And in 2013, a first bulk of them filed a lawsuit against the contractor who was in charge of the cleanup. And to make a long story short, that lawsuit is ongoing. So in 2018, a jury decided that the contractor in charge of the cleanup, they're called Jacobs Engineering, basically broke their contract with TVA by not ensuring site-wide safety. This lawsuit has basically ballooned and it's now has over 220 worker claims and over 100 claims by spouses and families of those workers. And while it's ongoing, people have also died. A lot of over 60 workers, according to Knox News's count, which is the local paper, have died. And it seems like a growing number of communities realize that these coal ash ponds are right there. In some cases, there's concern about groundwater. Can you kind of sum up the bigger picture as to what's played out and what people are finding about coal ash? 
Yeah. So a big thing that happened since the spill is that in 2015, two years after these workers filed their lawsuit, Uh, the federal government came out with its first coal ash rule. So that's a rule that basically for the first time ever monitored coal ash waste and created regulations for coal ash, which we had just been dumping into essentially large unlined pits with less regulation than a solid waste landfill where you put your kitchen waste. And in the years since, um, because we have that rule coal plants now have to report their groundwater monitoring data. And so now we know that of the 292 coal plants in the U.S., over 90% are leaking contaminants into groundwater. And since the coal ash rule has come out, all of these coal sites have to create basically a cleanup plan. And more than half of U.S. plants have not committed to a cleanup plan yet. There's a scientist at Duke University named Avner Vengosh, and I was talking to him last week. And he came out with a report that basically shows that coal ash is already in the environment, even beyond these coal ash sites. Um, so his argument is that like we're really focused on where we store it in impoundments, but the train has left the station and coal ash is already like ubiquitous in the environment. And even that cleanup effort has seemed to kind of spur spinoff problems where I know some communities are worried now as utilities relocate piles of coal ash, they're being trucked through neighborhoods at times. Yeah, the story that Martha and I did together in Memphis was about that issue exactly. There's a plant called the Allen plant, uh, which is also owned by the Tennessee Valley Authority, and they were sued to clean up their coal ash site. And their solution for cleanup was to truck the coal ash through a low-income, predominantly Black community in South Memphis to a landfill site. And so there was a lot of pushback from that community on where that coal ash was being trucked and the fact that it existed on top of an aquifer that provided clean drinking water to all of Memphis. And so there was a lot of fear that there was going to be pollution into that aquifer. Well, Austin, I hope you continue to cover this topic. I know it's important to a lot of people. Thank you for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. That was Kentucky freelance reporter Austin Gaffney. Washed Away, her story with artist Martha Park about landslides and flooding in Kentucky appeared in Bitter Southerner. It's linked on our website, wvpublic.org. Recently, the world's leading climate scientist released another grim report. Climate change is getting even worse, and we're reaching the point of no return. Radio IQ's Mallory No Pain has this look at how Virginia ski resorts are faring as they face an uncertain future. It's a 50-degree day in mid-March, but a couple lifts are still running at Massanutten. The snow here isn't fake. Snow is snow, right? It's... It's, uh... But it is man-made, explains snowmaking manager Jesse Reist. So the air and the water mix, and then the fan propels it out of the front of the gun, and it freezes 
well, we hope it freezes before it falls. <laughs> that takes temperatures below 30 degrees, which in this part of the country is often overnight. The night crew does most of the production and then the day crew gets ready for the next night. Ski resorts in the southeast have never really been able to depend on Mother Nature. There wouldn't be skiing in Virginia without snowmaking. There never would have been. Kenny Hess, who's worked here for 40 years, says the biggest change he's seen isn't in weather patterns, but in technology. 30 years ago, we would make snow on one trail, and then we'd take all those snow guns and we'd move it to the next trail. And then you'd move it to the next trail, and that's how you opened up the mountain. This resort, as well as nearby Wintergreen, has invested in tech that allows them to take advantage of smaller windows of time to make snow. Even still, Wintergreen had to close the slopes early this year, after zero inches of natural snowfall. Lori Zalauga is director of marketing. Once you start to see daffodils and crocuses and not just the snow that melts, but I think just the overall desire to ski kind of wanes. Zalauga says they haven't noticed a significant shortening of the winter season yet. But maybe that's because they've always had to deal with highly variable weather patterns. We happen to go through the peaks and valleys and we'll take it as it comes. You know, we we build, we melt, we build, we melt, and we keep going. So we are pretty resilient in that matter. Jeremy Hoffman is a climate scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia. He agrees Virginia's winter sports industry has always had to contend with uncooperative and dramatic shifts in weather year over year. We all know that our weather can be very very specific in Virginia. You know, somebody living two blocks away from you can have a very different um, rainfall total or snowfall total. But hidden underneath that surface level noise, a slower, bigger trend absolutely does lurk. Warming winters and specifically overnight lows. So the minimum of minimum temperatures, the coldest of the coldest nights, those are even in the near term expected to increase by about two degrees Celsius in the next, you know, 20 to 40 years. And those are the temps Virginia resorts rely on for snowmaking. Hoffman says it's a testament to the industry's innovation and grit that skiing exists in the state at all. But whether it continues to exist will depend on us taking action right now to lower carbon emissions. Are we all going to stand up and help an industry that is already challenged by the year-to-year conditions that they're given, already using the tip of the spear of the innovation that's available to them? It's in our hands whether or not ski season continues for Virginians long term. Back at Massanutten, Kenny Hess says they're still banking on ski season being around for the long haul. But that doesn't mean he's not worried. I don't want my kids and my grandkids and their kids to not have the things that we had, you know, growing up. So, you know, that's important to all of us here. You know, we're we're a family resort, you know, we're employee-owned. And these owners are making decisions with that in mind. They recently added two solar arrays, and construction is underway on a third. In Massanutten, I'm Mallory Nopain. Climate change means disruptions to global weather patterns, resulting in heavier rain, more intense storms, flooding, and extreme heat, among other symptoms. Much of the research behind climate change uses data stored at the National Center for Environmental Information in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the world's largest repository of climate data, 
and also home to scientists who are working to cut through the jargon and better communicate the science to the public. As Blue Ridge Public Radio's Helen Chickering found out, it's not necessarily the big words and phrases that are the problem. Hi, I'm BPR's Helen Chickering. A recent report from the United Nations paints a sobering picture of the progress on combating climate change, suggesting the world appears to be at risk of crossing a frightening threshold and needs to take drastic action. One of the biggest challenges for climate scientists who study and share these findings is communicating to the public. The field is chock full of complicated terms, but it's not always those big words and phrases that are the problem. The report is providing an update of the estimated remaining carbon budget compatible with limiting... It's the warmest 10-year period on record in North Carolina and about a half degree warmer than the warmest previous... If you've heard or read a recent climate report, perhaps caught the headlines in the news, chances are some of those words were edited by Tom Maycock. He's a science editor with NC State University's Institute for Climate Studies based in Asheville. Maycock is part of a vast network of science writers and editors who work behind the scenes helping climate scientists organize and translate their data and research findings into reports that are read by everyone from the president to the public. And really what I do is help the scientists who are authoring those reports try to frame their language in a way that is more accessible, but also as accurate and precise as it can be. It's a challenging job. And while the wordy technical terms are the obvious culprits, a recent study suggests there's another not-so-obvious layer of jargon that needs the editor's attention. Researchers with the United Nations Foundation and the University of Southern California tested the public's knowledge on some uncomplicated terms that show up in climate science reports. USC's Wendy Bruin de Bruin was the lead author on the study. And so the words that they selected were like adaptation, mitigation, sustainable development, words that you may or may not have heard before, but they're used in a lot of climate change communications. The study findings suggest these fairly simple-sounding words and terms are an overlooked source of confusion and misinterpretation. Even if people thought that some of those terms were easy to understand, didn't necessarily mean that they actually defined those words in the way that climate scientists would. And that's a problem, says veteran science climate communicator Susan Joy Hassel, who for years has been collecting such words she dubs a different kind of jargon. It's words that people do understand. They just understand them to mean something completely different. So, for example, to the public, positive is good and negative is bad. But in climate science, they don't use the terms that way. Positive is upward. So they'll talk about a positive trend in temperature. The public thinks that sounds good, right? It's not. In the era of global warming, a positive trend in temperature is bad. The definition disconnect is a pet peeve that Hassel has turned into a public service campaign. We tapped into her expertise to help clear some of that climate word confusion, starting with the very common term, greenhouse gas. If the public hears a term like greenhouse gases, they don't know what that means. It, it kind of depends on them understanding the metaphor of a greenhouse for global warming. I like to call it heat-trapping pollution rather than greenhouse gases because heat-trapping tells you the mechanism 
these things trap heat. So carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping gases act like a blanket. They hold heat in Earth's atmosphere. You mentioned carbon dioxide. I feel like that's another one, carbon. We say it a lot, but do we really understand what it means in terms of climate change? Carbon is an element, letter C on the periodic table. Carbon dioxide is the heat-trapping gas that is the most important one that humans are producing through our activities, the burning of coal, oil, and gas, and the clearing of forests. People have sort of shorthanded carbon dioxide into carbon. So what's your carbon footprint? It's really your carbon dioxide footprint. How much CO2 are you producing? What about carbon neutral? We hear that a lot. Carbon neutral means you don't emit more carbon dioxide than you can take up. So we know that trees take up carbon dioxide. We know that we're emitting much more carbon dioxide than the trees on Earth can take up. So we need to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide we're emitting to the level that the trees and the oceans and the other, we call them sinks, for carbon can take up. That's the way Earth stores carbon. It's another one of these words that mean different things, right? When you hear sink, you think of that vessel where you wash dishes. What scientists are talking about with carbon sinks are places where carbon is stored, in the soil, in vegetation, in trees, in the oceans. Those are carbon sinks. So we want to balance the sources and the sinks so that we're no longer putting in more carbon dioxide than we're taking up. What about mitigate, mitigation? We hear that a lot, too. Yeah, I once had a washing machine hose burst and flooded my house. I called a flood mitigation service. They came in after the fact and cleaned up the mess. So that's not at all what we mean when we use it that way around climate change. We mean to proactively reduce, to reduce future climate change. But the public uses it in a different way. We use it to mean clean up or reduce the impact of in any way. And I sometimes have to remind my scientist colleagues that not everyone knows what we mean when we say that. So let's just say reduce future climate change instead of mitigation. It's a message that's not lost on science editor Tom Maycock. So I think those are terms we need to be very careful about explaining and sometimes just avoiding. If you mean reducing emissions, just say reducing emissions. Maycock helped edit North Carolina's 2020 climate science report, which includes a plain language summary and the phrase heat-trapping gases. Reporting in Asheville, I'm Helen Chickering. Later in the show, we'll talk with agriculture professor Sarah Hall about her new book, Sown in the Stars, Planting by the Signs, which explores using the night sky to grow your garden. It is a little bit sort of scientific based on <laughs> um, astronomy. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. The Toxic Train Derailment in 
East Palestine, Ohio, has spotlighted rail safety across the country. Charleston, West Virginia native Sarah Feinberg served as the chief of the Federal Railroad Administration in the Obama White House and helped craft rail safety regulations. Feinberg spoke with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Curtis Tate about issues raised by recent derailments. There's probably more attention to rail safety now than there has been in years. But what's the reality for actually getting something to change? CEOs, members of boards, um, employees, you know, all say that safety is their top priority because that's what they're supposed to say and what they've been trained to say. But, you know, safety regulators don't have shareholders. <laughs> um, they, their job is literally just to do the safe thing, uh, just to do the thing that, that brings the most safety um, in a way that's most efficient. And, um, you know, safety regulators rarely actually get to execute on the kind of regulation that is going to make the most sense for any industry. And so you do all that you can in the amount of time that you have to provide as much safety to people as you possibly can. And, you know, inevitably, you know that things get left on the table and that there's you know some things that the Congress doesn't let you do uh, or that a court system doesn't let you do. And inevitably, you know that those things that are left behind will probably, you know, end up resulting in some sort of incident. And so it's super frustrating. What lessons can we learn from the East Palestine derailment? Um, for the Norfolk Southern derailment specifically, you know, you, you mentioned that there are a lot of factors and there are always, almost always multiple contributing factors to any incident. You know, sometimes it's just one thing. Um, but, but oftentimes there's contributing factors. And so you know, it'll be interesting to see what the NTSB comes up with on this derailment. Certainly, you know, the wheel bearing, uh, was the cause of the incident, but there's a lot of contributing factors, you know, and the contributing factors are probably likely to be, you know, did Norfolk Southern have the right thresholds in place? You know, were the, were sufficient inspections done? Um, you know, there'll be a, were the hot box detectors, you know, set? in a way that made sense. Um, so, you know, there'll be a lot that comes out and there'll be contributing factors and that'll give safety regulators a roadmap. It'll give industry a roadmap. Uh, and we'll see what, we'll see what comes of it. The industry's business strategy, precision scheduled railroading is under the microscope. How do you see it from a safety perspective? Um, if you asked a safety regulator, whether they think precision railroading makes sense? They would probably say, mm, depends on depends on what we're talking about here. Are we talking about longer trains? No, that doesn't really make sense to a safety regulator. Are we talking about smaller crew size? Mm, probably doesn't make sense to a safety regulator. Are we talking about fewer inspections, fewer you know qualified uh, inspectors available to to do a really uh, significant you know close look at you know take a close look at rail cars? If we're talking about cutting those, that doesn't make sense. So um, you know. Industry and railroads are focused on shareholders and dividends and stock price and profit um, being as efficient as they can possibly be. That's not what that's not usually what makes the most sense if you are prioritizing safety. What are the chances we might see a rail safety bill become law? I think it's probably better than uh, than it was before the derailment. But, um, you know, at this point and having spent, you know, the better part of 20 years working either within the federal government or on Capitol Hill or adjacent to the federal government or in the state, in state government, adjacent to state government, you know, the sad reality is I have very low expectations for the Congress being able to successfully uh, do much. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of times 
you know, there's a hearing or a couple hearings like what we've seen in the last couple of weeks where Alan Shaw, you know, the CEO of Norfolk Southern gets pulled in front of the Commerce Committee or the Public Works Committee and, you know, is sort of read the Riot Act and members of Congress, you know, push him really hard and ask him really hard questions. But for a whole bunch of members of Congress, they feel like they've had their sort of moment in the sun where they were giving the Norfolk Southern CEO a really hard time. But what are they going to do to really finalize that legislation and push it forward? I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. I would be interested to, to know what, you know, a bunch of those senators have done in the days since that hearing to actually move this legislation forward. What about the industry push to have just one person in the locomotive instead of two? And the regulatory push to keep at least two? Where is that going? if there's any action on crew size at all, is to send it to the FRA and direct the FRA to promulgate a regulation, uh, which means, uh, you know, years, because the regulatory process is so broken that any regulation generally takes at least a year or two, if not more, uh, to get through the regulatory process, to get through the public comment period, to get through, you know, the fights and the roadblocks and the landmines that industry puts up um, to get through, you know, the, the stakeholders in the Congress seeking to delay it or to water it down, um, you know, to get through OIRA. And so, you know, what will be really key, if folks really want to take action on crew size, it'll be key for the Congress to actually have an up or down vote directing the industry that they, you know, cannot go be- below two crew members. If it lands... At the FRA, um, the FRA will prioritize it. They'll do great work. But because it's been put into the regulatory process, it will take a long time. And in that amount of time, you can expect industry to water it down. That was former Federal Railroad Administrator Sarah Feinberg speaking with WVPB's Curtis Tate. A lot of elected officials are talking lately about restricting access to books in school libraries and banning certain books altogether. But what about book bans in prisons? The Marshall Project is a nonprofit newsroom focused on the criminal justice system. It's published a searchable database of the books banned in 18 state prison systems, including several in the Appalachian region. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with Marshall Project journalist Andrew Calderon about the project and what it could mean in West Virginia prisons. Explain to me why prison systems uh, ban books in the first place. From the perspective of the policies that we reviewed, it seems that there is a really big concern on books coming in being a threat to order or security, um, be it because the books themselves can be used to smuggle in contraband or because information can be transmitted in them in the forms of of notes or highlights. Um, Sometimes the policies also make it clear that the format of the book itself can be considered a threat. Um, For example, there are some systems that ban spiral binding or hardcover books. Um, It's unclear to me, based on the reporting that I've done, to what extent books have been used in those ways, Um, either, you know, that they've incited violence or that they've been used as a, you know, part of gang activity or something to be able to smuggle contraband or information. But it seems that the policies themselves um, elicit a very explicit fear of that happening. You know, every movie you've ever seen that there's prisoners reading books in their in their uh, cells and that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, and I'm thinking the black and white movies. So this is back mm-hmm. from the for the last 70, 80 years. We've been seeing that as a, as an imagery. Is is this changing now? Is this something in the last twenty years that's gotten more restrictive? I don't have 
a clear answer on that. But what I can say is that um, there there is a sense among people who are working on this space that because of the environment around book bans in general right now across the country, especially in the education system, that there might be ways in which um, the prison systems will respond and themselves also become more restrictive because, you know, they ultimately are public entities. And many of these, you know, restrictions, prohibitions, they happen much less publicly than they do in schools. And so it's possible that it's already happening and it's just really hard for us to know. For example, from the policy review that we did, we managed to get policies from 37 states and we found that in four states plus the federal system, there's an explicit ban on having a banned book list inside of the facilities. And so in those systems, it's virtually impossible for us to know which books are being prohibited and which ones are being allowed. Uh, d- let's talk about West Virginia for a minute. I know you, you don't have a whole lot of specific information on the state, but, but you did get West Virginia's policy. Um, what, what is that? What is the state, the, the policy on, on books in prisons in West Virginia? So for West Virginia in particular, um, I remember seeing that there were specific criteria listed for uh, when a book should or should not be banned. Um, That included some of the kind of common things that we see in other policies like nudity, violence, etc. They also, the state of West Virginia also has an appeals process that allows um, people who are incarcerated who receive a rejection to appeal that process through the grievance system. And um, also in the policy, there's room actually for the possibility that people in the mailroom who are reviewing the books may not have all of the knowledge or understanding of the book necessary to be able to make a decision about whether or not it should be banned. And so there's recourse for the mailroom to consult with legal counsel. And... Um, and there are also some like specific deadlines that need to be observed, like um, the person who's incarcerated has about 20 days to submit an internal grievance uh, when they receive a rejection. And it's important to note that because largely, you know, whether or not they receive the rejection in a timely manner determines whether or not they're able to file the grievance in a timely manner. As I recall, there is West Virginia is one of those states that does not maintain a list of banned mm-hmm. books within the system. West Virginia is one of the states that in their policy explicit, explicitly bans the creation of a banned book list, yes. You would think it would make the whole process easier. This book is banned, or even even books with this content, you know, and writing out detailed uh, uh, rules would make it easier on everyone uh, to understand and to, to navigate. But anything else you can tell me about West Virginia um, specifically? or No, un- unfortunately, there isn't much more that I can say about West Virginia beyond the policy. And I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's in part because they don't have a banned book list. If I had a banned book list, we'd be able to glean more about the system and you know, how these decisions are made, when they're made, the reasons that certain books are rejected, what kinds of books are rejected. And this speaks to however well-meaning the policy of not having banned books are. And, you know, to give credit to the institution or to be charitable to them, I'm sure that whoever wrote this down had some sense of the positives, but it does create an opacity that doesn't allow us to glean what is happening inside of the system. And that doesn't come with its 
without its disadvantages. That was Andrew Calderon from nonprofit newsroom The Marshall Project, speaking with Eric Douglas. For more of the interview, visit our website, wvpublic.org. It's that time of year when people start planting their gardens. But when should you plant? Sarah Hall is an associate professor of agriculture and natural resources at Berea College. She's the author of Sown in the Stars, Planting by the Signs, a new book that blends Appalachian oral storytelling with a very old method of gardening by the stars. Our producer and frustrated backyard gardener, Bill Lynch, couldn't wait to talk with her. Tell us a little about yourself. Maybe start with your first garden or the first time you remember even being in a garden. Yeah, I kind of had to um, think there for a second. Definitely, um, when I was a when I was a kid growing up, um, we usually would have a garden at at my granny's house in Estill County, um, and the main things there were uh, beans and tomatoes, of course. And I do recall sweet corn sometimes being grown successfully. But it wasn't kind of always there. Um, But the beans and tomatoes were two big things. And that was kind of a communal effort. So it was um, my uncle and his family who lived very close to my granny. They would help um, kind of put it in and tend. But then when, when it started coming in, everybody would pitch in with snapping the beans to can and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I, that I guess is probably my earliest memory. And then actually gardening on my own kind of started in grad school when I was in Lexington. Um, and my, my first attempts were pretty, were pretty bad in that our our gardening space was incredibly shaded. So, uh, so I grew lots of tomato plants, but uh, we, we did not get hardly any actual tomatoes just because our sunlight was so limited. So I had some lessons there and what we could actually grow well. And, you know, over a few different years kind of figured that out and didn't try to grow tomatoes anymore and just grew the things that could handle a little bit of shade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the beginning. That was so probably 2005, I guess, was probably the the first year that I really had a garden um, of my own or with uh, the friend that I was living with. Um, at that time, we sort of cared for it together. And ever since, I've tried to at least have something wherever I am. You know, in some cases, it's just a little raised bed. You know, now I have sort of dedicated garden space and I'm able to to do a lot more. With your family, with how they gardened, how did they plan and, and, and plot their garden versus how you did after grad school? Or was it the same way? Well, that's a good question. And actually, my family, as far as I know, did not follow the signs. My granny always had one of those calendars on her wall. Um, I remember the colors because it is they they are pretty much all sort of black and white um, in their color motif and have a similar look about them. Um, and so I remember that, but I don't I don't recall that necessarily being followed by my family members. 
I sort of came to that piece of things when I started teaching at Berea and I uh, developed a course called Appalachian Plants and People and started looking at all the Foxfire books for course materials and um, also had a lot of students do independent projects and get into kind of agriculture and uh, started to think about it more. I mean, I realized that it was a theme that that had come up, um, but it became apparent at that time that I was sort of surprised at how few resources there were um, on it, you know, I mean, other than the chapter in Foxfire 1 and there's a chapter in Foxfire 11, there's really not a whole lot written about it, even though there's all these calendars and almanacs that come out every year and lots of people still follow them. So that was kind of how I started to think about developing a project when it came time for me to think about my sabbatical. And I had also met a farmer who's uh, fairly well known in sort of the Kentucky circles, um, John John Clay, when I was working at Kentucky State University. Um, so that was in 2010. I was out at the research farm there and he just stopped by and chatted with me and gave me some seeds and I cannot remember when he said that I should plant them, but he said that if I planted them, you know, at a certain time that they would go an inch deeper in the soil. And I just thought, oh, that's that's an interesting <laughs> that's an interesting concept. And uh, so that sort of started my thinking about it. And then as I saw it touched on more and more um, and yet not all that much um, in the record when I started teaching my class, that's kind of how it came about. Having a certain background, but also going into a topic that's a little outside of your usual box. Any surprises for you personally? One thing I would say is that I was I was surprised at how many people learned from women in their family. Um, so that was a, a theme that came up almost across the board. There are a couple exceptions. Um, you know, I interviewed around two dozen people and for the most part, it was either mothers or mothers-in-law or grandmothers. I think that was kind of a, that was a pleasant surprise. And then the, I guess the other thing is just sort of getting a clearer picture of that link of astronomy and astrology in thinking about how, yeah, how historically there, it may have the two may have been more closely aligned and, you know, it, it could have been, for instance, that, you know, if you look at the almanac man with, with the, the progression of the Zodiac signs that you go through, I mean, it would make perfect sense if um, for instance, a new moon, you know, always started at Aries or the head, right? If that were the case, then you would have the same progression. Um, you would always have the same phases of the moon during, you know, when you're in whichever sign it is. But because our months are not the exact same as the progression of the moon, um, you know, they don't quite line up. But so sort of, you know, getting a clearer picture of the roots of it and how it is a little bit sort of scientific based on <laughs> um, astronomy, but but not exactly the same now. You know, that's that's been interesting and has, you know, in some ways, I guess at the end put me in the same place as I was at the beginning of just thinking it's incredibly interesting, being fascinated with it, thinking there are a whole bunch of people that are doing it, that are following it, that swear by it, 
And maybe there's good reason for that. Obviously, we have a thing called climate change, which seems to be happening. I, I wonder whether the, I guess, the old signs and symbols, how whether those are affected by climate change and what your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one um, that I've thought about quite a bit, um, you know, in some way, well, certainly in a lot of ways, things are less predictable now, you know, just in terms of what the climate is doing and seasons progressing in general, things are happening much earlier in the spring. But if there is something to the signs and, um, you know, to sort of this influence over water and all these different aspects that might be connected with that, um, you know, if moisture, for instance, is more likely to happen in one of the water signs, then, Planting by the signs can be a way to maybe have a little bit better chance, right, at at success than if you don't follow them. You know, I think because what you end up with is, you know, a couple a couple days under each sign, you know, two to two and a half days under each sign during the progression, if climate change means that things are happening or that spring is coming earlier, you still you still can follow it fairly easily. It just may mean that, you know, you're you're hitting things a whole, you know, month earlier or two weeks earlier, you know, than you would have been before. But you can still be thinking about and planning out sort of the favorable when the next favorable sign is for whatever it is the activity is that that you need to do in the garden. So what's next? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's the one that I knew I knew I would be asked and you know, I I'm not sure for now I really am just excited to get this out and to yeah, and to be hearing from folks. I am I'm looking forward to conversations with people as I have uh events coming up who have read the book, you know, and who have um had some time with it to be able to get some feedback from them. So so that's what that's where I'm focusing right now is on that and yeah and making sort of reconnecting with folks that I had interviewed or their family members and, and for the next little foreseeable future that's what I'll be doing along with getting out and getting my garden in and you know taking notes about what I'm doing hopefully hitting hitting things at the right time but but yeah that's that's what I got going Sarah thank you very much Thank you. I sure appreciate it, Bill. Sown in the Stars is available from University of Kentucky Press. Bill is working his way through the book, looking for a mention of what to do about deer. Bill, I'm adding a few extra feet of netting to the old woven wire fence around my garden. I'll let you know how that turns out. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, Chris Knight, Tyler Childers, Landau Eugene Murphy Jr., and Martika and William. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. 
Visit wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.